we're going to be reading through a lot of passages. Um, but Ben asked me to say before I start, this is sort of about James and the transition he made and his his kind of turn to believing in God. So that's why there's a bunch of passages today. John 7, 5. Not even Jesus' brothers and sisters believed in him. Mark 3, 21. Jesus' family tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. James 1, 1. Three years later, this letter is from James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you were wondering what happened in those three years, 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered of you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, and that he was buried and raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephalus and then the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of which are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then the apostles, last of all, as one to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of these apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. If you're a note taker, here is where we're going. First, we'll talk about the danger of faux familiarity. I'll explain that in just a minute. And the second, we'll talk about the surprise of a savior. Let me pray before we do that. Jesus, uh, we just heard that you're alive. You're not a dead idea that we come to discuss. You're a living person. And so our hope is actually in you tonight, not in my ability to teach or anybody's ability to understand or track. If you were a dead idea, it would all be up to us to get it inside of us and make it real. But if you're alive, you can do that work. And that's what I ask you to do. We want to see your word get inside of us and come alive. We want to go through this shift that your little brother went through of thinking he knew you and dismissing you to actually knowing you and giving his life to you. Ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Have you ever heard of that phrase on the top of your sheet? Familiarity breeds contempt. It's pretty common. I think most of you have probably heard it. Uh, what it basically means is that the more familiar you are with someone, the more likely you are to take them for granted or to be like annoyingly unimpressed by them as time goes on. Things go from kind of full color with that person to black and white and boring. This phenomenon of familiarity breeds contempt, it happens in friend groups. Some of you, I doubt if you just moved to town this is happening, but some of you upperclassmen, maybe this has happened to you in your friend group. You got to Athens with a little cluster of really tight high school friends, but as you began to meet new people up here and other people up here, it got easier and easier to neglect those friends or to take them for granted and to kind of want to move on. 
and maybe even now they're kind of a little bit annoying to you and you're trying to turn the page. Familiarity with friends you have a lot of history with bred contempt and you grew apart. This could even happen in the most intimate of human relationships, which is marriage. Have you ever heard someone who's married say something along the lines of, we just, we lost the spark. We've grown apart. Uh, We feel just like roommates now. Familiarity over the years between a husband and a wife can breed contempt and make them grow apart. It can even happen with physical surroundings. scenes or things you drive by every day. You no longer stop to take it in. You no longer take pictures. You just drive by. Um, I'll pull up a picture in just a minute, but I I got to know this personally when we lived out in New Mexico. I had a five-minute drive home from work every day. From campus to my house was five minutes. And um, Cal, if you can pull up that picture, this is what I drove in front of every day, usually at sunset. This is the tail end of the Rocky Mountains, the Oregon Mountains. And New Mexico State is kind of right in this area. And my route home every day was sunset looking at that. So you know what I did the first few weeks I was out there? I annoyed all my friends back in Georgia and across the country with an Instagram that only included pictures of that or my face in it. But you also know what happened in the months and years after that. I'm late for dinner, just get home, swerving in and out of traffic. I'm listening to some podcast, I'm checked out. And for years, I would just drive past that as if it was nothing. Familiarity breeds contempt, can make us blind to what's right in front of our faces. The more you're exposed to something, the less you actually see it, know it, and appreciate it. Does it make sense how it's easy for contempt to creep in? This isn't new. If you grew up familiar with the Bible, if you grew up in the church, um, I bet when I say this, it'll sound familiar to you. Do you remember when Jesus repeat? Jesus was quoting what at his time, 2,000 years ago, was already a well-worn phrase. He said, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown. In other words, you never get to grow up in your hometown. People are still like, oh, I remember you and you were this big and you just feel so diminished every time you go back. Wait till you get a little bit older and you're still seven-year-old version of you or 13-year-old version of you back home. People think they're so familiar with you, they think they know you, but they don't see how you've grown. They don't see how you've changed. So this is true in our day. It was true back in Jesus' day, too. Those we're most familiar with can be the very people we're most prone to be unimpressed with and dismiss. Hear this. Those, Those of us in this room seemingly most familiar with Jesus can also be the people most prone to be unimpressed by Jesus. It's a thing. Um, it's crazy. Listen to this. Listen to Matthew. Uh, Matthew was a disciple of Jesus's, and he wrote an account of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Listen to what he wrote in Matthew 13, 54 through 56. This is the story of one day when Jesus went back home, back to the hometown, back to his home church. 
He says, when Jesus returned to Nazareth, or Jesus returned to Nazareth, his hometown, when he stood up to teach there in the synagogue, everyone was amazed, and they said, where, does, where is he getting this wisdom and power to do miracles? Then they scoffed. Then they're like, oh, I knew I knew you. You're the little carpenter boy. Mary, Mary who doesn't have a husband anymore, you're Mary's little boy. And then Matthew continues, and he says, um, you're just a carpenter's son. We know your mom, your mother, and your brothers, jo James, this James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and all your sisters live right here among us. In other words, we were impressed until we remembered, oh, we know you. And the respect goes out the window. Hear this again. It just proves the point even deeper. There is danger in being familiar even with God himself. If it was true then, it's true now. So one question that maybe just leave on the side while we continue to think about this is, are you aware of this danger? Do you have a plan to guard against it? So let's keep talking about it. Where exactly does the danger lie? I think if we had to kind of really put our finger on it, and drill down, I think we could say this is the peace. This is the thing about familiarity that can breed contempt. Here it is. It can give you the impression that you really know a person when in fact you still have a lot of homework to do on figuring that person out. Does that make sense? It'll give you the impression that learning time is over. I know who you are. When in fact, I don't have a clue who you are. I just know a little bit about you, and I've assumed all the rest. That's the danger in it. And so, this kind of familiarity can kill curiosity. That's how it can breed boredom. It kills interest. That's how it suffocates teachability. You become very arrogant thinking, I know these people, when in fact, you don't really. So what I want to do is call this, because some, we'll talk in a minute, some kind of familiarity can be helpful, but let's, let's name this toxic kind of familiarity, faux familiarity. If you want to trademark a word tonight, do you want to be in on it? We'll trademark it right here. Faux-miliarity. Look at that. I did it. Some of y'all are groaning. Whatever. We're just, I'm just putting it out there if that helps you. Some of you might be thinking by this point, if you're tracking, well, I'm not that religious. Or I'm a new Christian. I don't really think of Jesus as someone who's familiar to me. But here's the thing. If you grew up in America and were born in the years you were born, and particularly if you grew up in the South, odds are still that you have some degree of familiarity with Jesus and a pretty high degree of familiarity with Jesus. Whether you believe him or not, follow him or not, You've heard his name. When I've been saying his name, you know who I'm talking about. That's familiarity. You grew up um, either following him or hearing about him every week or being friends with people who followed him. Maybe, maybe you didn't even grow up in a religious house, but friends of yours in high school or middle school followed him, and you began to kind of learn or hear a little bit about him secondhand. You have well-formed opinions about Christianity. Is it a good force in our society, a bad force, a mixed bag? You're familiar. We're all familiar. 
which also means that all of us have had to do something with Jesus. We've had to either dismiss him and set him aside a little bit and be like, well, I think whatever he's about and his people are about is kind of a bad force here. I'm going to push him away a little bit, or I think he's God. I'm going to follow him. I think he can lift me out of what I'm stuck in. We've all had to do something with him. So I think of all people in the world, maybe we're some of the most in danger of faux familiarity, thinking we know who Jesus is when in fact we only see a veneer. So back to the passage. Here is James. He's the guy who wrote the book. He's one of the people John outed. John named him and said, uh, even James didn't believe in his brother. Um, So James is one of many siblings. We don't know how many brothers and sisters Jesus had, but if it was a normal uh, Jewish family of that day and age, it was probably pretty big. Um, So James is one of those siblings, and he certainly knew this very danger that we're talking about tonight. This is very real to James, very real to him. He was a victim of faux familiarity. And I say a victim of it because you heard what Rosalind read earlier, specifically that little verse from John, the very first one on your sheet. Not even Jesus' brothers and sisters believed in him. The way John's phrasing that is, you would have, you would have thought that the blood relatives of Jesus, or the, the step brothers and sisters of Jesus would have believed in him. You would have thought that, right? Not even they believed him. Not even the people closest to him. Not even his fan club were fans, is what he's saying there. And that's really significant because nobody, including the disciples, spent more time on a clock, more months, more years, in the immediate presence of God in the flesh than James and his brothers and sisters. Nobody. Nobody observed him more up closely. More, no, no one saw him in his private or unscripted moments more than his brothers and sisters. And we know just, you know, you can deduce, they didn't not believe in him from a lack of information or a lack of knowledge. Jesus is love. Jesus grew up to be a teacher for a living. Of course he would have patiently loved his little brothers and sisters and helped them understand who he was. He's not like, oh, that's a private thing for me. Jesus really held his cards close to his chest. No, he didn't. (laughs) He told anybody and everybody who he was. Of course he would have loved his little brothers and sisters by telling them that. It wasn't a, a lack of information. Let's keep painting this picture just a little bit so that this you know, connects immediately to us. Add all this up. What was life like to grow up a literal sibling of God in the flesh? Wow. Try to wrap your head around that. Well, let's try to wrap our head around that. Jesus being older and the firstborn would have helped raise all the little rugrats that came after him in that house. All the little brothers and sisters. First century Palestinian homes were one room. Everybody ate in the same room. Everybody slept in the same room. There was no privacy. You were always together. And so every little newborn baby that's born into Mary and Joseph's house, guess who's up all night while the baby screams? Jesus. Guess who laughs when they throw their food? Jesus. Guess who teaches them the family trade that Joseph had taught him, carpentry, and teaches them how to make a dovetail joint? Jesus. 
Guess who consoled those little brothers and sisters when their dad, Joseph, presumably died? We, didn't, we don't know that for certain. We assume it. Who stayed up with Mary when she was crying through the night? Who picked up those little kids when they stubbed their toe? We know that this is a family that had memories together. They did road trips together down to Jerusalem for Passover, for festivals. They celebrated holidays together. They had inside jokes together. The brothers and sisters had those little moments like every sibling set does where you look across the table at dinner and you don't even have to say anything. And just the look on someone's face, you all break out laughing. The little secrets you kept from mom and dad. That's this family. You know they looked up to him. Remember, don't think of, oh, Jesus, the Pharisee, Jesus who is love incarnate. Imagine that for a big brother. But as he grew up, it got weird, really weird, as it sometimes does when people move away, go off to college or go off to start their career. They knew their brother was different for sure. That was obvious even from a younger age. But as he moved off and went public with his ministry, they didn't even have the ability to be like, oh, well, he's just in a phase. He's kind of in a hyper-religious phase. Maybe he'll grow out of it. They know he's not going to grow out of it. It bothered them because they shared a last name with him. Word travels fast in a tiny little town. With a person like this, world travels fast everywhere. And they, were, they became embarrassed to be associated with him. His reputation was connected to their reputation. So just imagine all the rumors, the gossip that you would hear or overhear from all your friends, everybody in the town, that your older brother is traveling the country telling people he is the savior of the world. I mean, there's still people who have mental illness or some other condition and they go around and they say that too. How would you like that for a sibling? So of course they, they don't want this. It's, it's messing up their lives. The little rabbis that they grew up respecting and learning from are now saying he's a blasphemer, he's the devil. These were your mentors. And they're against your big brother. Things get so bad that Mark 3.21, it's in your, in your little sheet here. Things got so bad they stage an intervention. They go find where he is. And as he's teaching, they send someone inside to say, hey, we're here, get outside. And basically they say, we're not leaving till you're in the car and we're going home. Jesus doesn't come out. They think he's out of his mind. It's not a casual dismissal. They think he's nuts. And they don't want to be associated with him. And you thought you had family drama. <laughs> imagine, imagine the siblings of God himself saying, God, why did I have to grow up in a family like this? Well, that's about all we know about why James didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. But for whatever all the reasons were, the pattern that it kicked into gear in James's heart and in his life is the same pattern this faux familiarity kicks into gear in our lives. And remember, I want to just redefine it in case you're losing me here. Faux familiarity, it's the illusion that you've properly sized Jesus up and you get him. 
that you've, that you've sufficiently considered who he is and can render a rational judgment. Is he relevant? I'm going to give my whole life to him, cry out to him because he's alive, or is he irrelevant? I'm going to kind of dabble in him and keep him a little bit arm's length. The pattern that it kicks into gear in our lives is this. It begins with downplaying, then it evolves into distancing, then it turns into full-blown denial. Downplaying, distancing, denial. Politely downplaying. Let's not take this religious stuff too seriously. I'm fine dabbling in Jesus. I don't want to dive in, kind of lose control. I don't want to get carried away here. Then it evolves into distancing yourself from him. I don't want to be associated with him. He's kind of becoming embarrassing in this cultural moment. I'm embarrassed to be associated with him. My friends don't need to know that I do this. My friends don't need to know that I believe. And that gradually slides into denying him outright. For, for most people, that's never just a cold turkey like, I believed one day and the next day I'm like, he's not real. It's a very slow, gradual thing. It's a very soft denial that turns into a pretty absolute denial. I don't even believe anymore. I've lost my faith. I've deconstructed. I've grown out of it. I'm done with the Jesus thing. Faux familiarity leads to downplaying, distancing, and denying. That's the spiritual death spiral the little brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ himself got sucked into. So before we move on, though, I want to zoom out and ask just big picture. What kind of thinking and habits go on in the mind and the heart of people who are getting sucked into that vortex? who are on their way towards downplaying, distancing, and denying. To put it succinctly, I'd say this. Oh, I hope you remember this. How do you know if you're on the path towards that outcome? If you're letting your randomly formed opinions of Jesus, or I should add your randomly formed feelings about God, if you're letting those randomly formed opinions tell you who he is instead of listening to him tell you who he is. You should prepare yourself for that pattern. You'll be downplaying, you'll be distancing, you'll be denying. So if we let those kind of half-baked opinions and feelings form your convictions about Jesus, you'll have the illusion that you know him and you'll be like, I've, I've, I know enough about him to say, not that important. Not Lord. Not God. Doesn't require any change to my life. If, though, you let Jesus do the forming and the informing, if you let Jesus introduce himself to you, and you do, li you do the listening, you should expect to find yourself growing intimately familiar with him intimately familiar with him. Here's the twist. Familiarity doesn't have to breed contempt. Doesn't have to. It can breed intimacy and connection too. The reverse is possible. It can be that the more you're exposed to a friend, the more you're exposed to this God, the more you actually see him. It could be that way. For every couple out there that says we lost the spark we're just roommates now because familiarity bred contempt. 
There's just as many, if not more, couples that said our marriage over the years has been the adventure of a lifetime. We love each other more deeply. We know each other more than we ever did on our wedding day. Have you heard that? I have. Familiarity doesn't have to breed contempt. So to put a fine point on this, here's the crux of the matter. The variable that will either turn you toward faux familiarity or towards a deepening familiarity that brings intimacy and connection and nearness to God, like that old married couple, is are you listening to God tell you who he is? And are you watching, letting him show you who he is? Or are you telling him who he is? You'll hear this quote a lot from me. If you've been around in the years past, you've almost got this thing memorized by now. If you're going to stick around, you will remember this because it'll come up a lot. Martin Lloyd-Jones, an old British pastor from about 60 or 70 years ago in London, he wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, and in that, there's this gem. He says, have you realized that most of our unhappiness in life is due to the fact that we listen to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves? Let me apply that to what we're talking about tonight. This is a question for everybody. Do this thought experiment with me. What are you saying to yourself about Jesus? Every person in a seat tonight is saying something to yourself about Jesus. Even if you're here and you've literally never heard the name until tonight. What are you saying to yourself about Jesus? And who told you that? Where'd you get that from? For example, are you, are you saying to yourself, even if these thoughts are intrusive, even if it's the first thought of the day you didn't ask for, but it's there, and it's saying to yourself, he's not near, he's far away. He's irrelevant to my day-to-day life. He's not resurrected. He's a dead idea, because I gotta do all the work to dig up that buried idea and try to get it inside of me. There's no life in him. I gotta supply all the energy. Is that what you say to yourself? or he's of no use to me, or he couldn't possibly be worth denying myself and reorienting my whole life around him. I say this to myself too often. I think a lot of y'all do as well. Do you say to yourself, he's not a friend of sinners? He's a judge of sinners only, and since I'm a sinner, he's not a friend of mine. Let's ask ourselves these questions. Let's take ourselves to task for a second and and, and cross-examine ourselves. Why are we taking ourselves so seriously? Who is a better theologian, God or you? 41-year-old me, 19-year-old you, or an eternal God? Who knows God better? So why are we putting so much stock in our random and I say random because they're different every day, thoughts and feelings about what he's like or where he is or whether his promises are true or not, why do we take ourselves so seriously? And why do we take him so unseriously? Why do we put so much stock in my feelings about him and so li- such little stock about his specific promises that billions of people through the ages have found true and staked their life on? Why is it, Ben, I do this. Why do you do it? 
Jesus would beg to differ with your inner dialogue. He says things very different than that, and I think he's worth being listened to. He says he is here. He says he's raised from the dead. So did a ton of other people who saw him raised from the dead, but he said it. He says he came not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. He says he's alive. He said he's able to help you. He said he's willing to help you. He says he's eager to help you. He says he's a friend of sinners, even when he got dragged through the mud for getting that reputation. He still stuck with it and said, no, they're right. I'm a friend. I'm a savior of sinners. If the express lane to a lifeless relationship with God is to keep listening to yourself, the slow but promising path to an intimate familiarity with the risen Lord Jesus is letting him tell you who he is. He is a talkative God. He is not shy. He doesn't play coy. He's not hard to understand. He's not silent. He's a chatterbox. And he and his friends have recorded for you his interactions with dozens and dozens of people just like you so that you don't just have to take their word for it. You get to see him in action with people just like you. The path to faux familiarity, distancing denial, is to keep listening to yourself. The path to faith is to listen to him. Back to Martin Lloyd-Jones, he continues the quote with some helpful, practical advice. The main art in spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, hope in God. Instead of muttering on in a depressed and unhappy way, in other words, listening to yourself, and then you must go on and you must remind yourself of God. Who is he? What has he done? What has he promised to do? If you're wondering what do I do with tonight's talk, take a picture of that. Or take a mental picture of it. That's what you do. But I don't want to send you out the door with stuff you got to do. Because did James' life turn upside down and turn around because James was like, you know what? After the crucifixion, he's like, maybe I was wrong about my brother. Maybe I need to reconsider this stuff. Maybe I was like in a faux way familiar with Jesus and I need to give him a second thought. No way. James, this is what's interesting about the passage um, in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus has to go and find James, which is presuming James is not with the apostles. James is not with the disciples. James was not second-guessing anything. James was not wondering if he got it wrong. James was figuring out, how can I get over the trauma of seeing my brother ripped apart on a cross? And how can I move on with my life now that he's out of the picture? That's what James was doing. So how did his life change? How did you get from the two little verses in the top to the third one where he says, I want, I'm a voluntary slave of this man, my brother who is Lord, who is God. I'm with him forever. How does he get to that? Here's how. His resurrected brother compellingly appeared to him. I say compellingly. You want, when they find a body, 
and it can't be identified, who do they call to come and identify the body? The family. The assumption is nobody knows this person like their brothers or their parents or their children. James, the brother of Jesus, who shared a bedroom with Jesus his entire life, isn't wondering, did I, did I have a bad dream? Was that a figment of my imagination? He's like, this, this brother that I saw with my own eyes get crucified is alive again. And when that appearance happened, James realizes two things very quickly. The first is this. My brother is exactly who he said he was. He must have been thinking he was always telling me the truth. I got it wrong my whole life. I should have listened. Why did he track me down and what is he about to say to me? And then James realized the second thing. We don't have an account of what that meeting was like, but I would imagine it was like Jesus' appearance to other people after he rose from the dead. He stares eyeball to eyeball with his little brother that he grew up with, all the shared history, all the memories, and all the hurt of being rejected and ridiculed and mocked and dismissed and denied by his little brother. And what James sees in those eyes of Jesus staring into his eyes aren't the kind of eyes that would lead you to believe he's about to lay down the hammer, he's about to give me the speech of I told you so. But he sees compassion. And he sees love. And he very quickly must have concluded, he didn't walk all this way to come find me, to condemn me. But he came to probably say, though you were trying to get over me, I've never gotten over you. <laughs> it's amazing. You're trying to move on without me. I've never moved on. Jesus appeared to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of human beings who could verify his resurrection. That's why Paul said some of them have died, but a lot of them are still alive. He's like, go ask them. Go do your peer-reviewed research. Go do your good journalism and ask the eyewitnesses. But of all the people that Jesus appeared to, only three people are named by name. Cephas, who is Peter. James, his little brother, and Paul. None of them were looking for Jesus. Jesus was looking for all three of them. He found Peter 100 miles north of where Peter denied him a few days before on a boat, going back to his old livelihood. And he looked with the same eyes at Peter. He said, Peter, and he restored him. He found Paul uh, on his way to Damascus, Sirius, to kill Christians. And he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he found his brother James, who knows where. Here's the takeaway, guys. Some of you, um, you need Jesus to appear to you. You need to look in his eyes, and you need him to look in your eyes, knowing you, seeing you, seeing past all the facade. And you need to know what kind of God you're dealing with on the other side, who is looking back at you. And some of you have known him, and you're familiar with him, and you need him, you need to reconsider who he really is. And we need to fight the fight of faith to let him tell you who he is and remind you who he is and us stop telling him who he is. 
to the extent that you give yourself to that, your life will change. James was a man who went from denying his brother to dying for his brother. He was stoned because he wouldn't deny his brother in AD 62 when he was given the opportunity. He's a man who went from thinking his brother was crazy to knowing his brother was the Christ here to save the world. From being embarrassed about his brother's claims to evangelizing all of Jerusalem about them. That's what happens when you meet a resurrected Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us in the ways that we have said. We want to see you. You are the Salvation is a gift. It's not something we produce and bring to you. You give it to us. But you also tell us to seek it. You tell us to ask for it, to cry out for it. So whether there are friends in the room asking for it for the first time or many of us in the room asking to be refreshed, would you meet both of us where we are? Come and track us down like you did Peter and James and Paul. Look at us again. Give us faith to see what face is looking back. Pray this in your name.